welcome everyone to another longevity panel. And this time we're going to focus a bit on biotech. How do we set, build successful biotech companies in the field of aging? And then how do we invest in the age of aging, as I like to call this period, where we have long living, but not necessarily healthy population. So I'm joined on stage by James Pyre, the founder and CEO of Cambria and Biopharma, Nathaniel David, um, who is a serial biotech founder and also founder of Unity, a biotechnology company, and Jupiter, and then Kristen Fortney, the founder and CEO of BioAge Labs. So I guess the best way to start perhaps would be, why don't you all give us like a very brief introduction about your companies and what is the single thing that your company is doing that you're most excited about? Ned, I guess, would you like to go first? Sure. So um, I'll talk about, uh, thanks, Dina. And so Dina mentioned that I'm a serial company builder. So I'll just talk about, uh, and I've been doing this for about 22 years, four approved medicines. Uh, two of my companies, Unity, uh, is a company that makes medicines that eliminate old cells. These are cells that don't divide anymore, and they drive a bunch of disease. And we tried it first in arthritis in human beings. Didn't work there. There was a pretty big clinical failure there. And then we moved into diseases of the aging retina. And we have beautiful data happening there where when we dose a patient with a disease of the aging retina, they can gain within 24 hours as much as 20 letters on an eye chart, like at the DMV. So that's really cool. That's Unity. And brand new company we're starting called Cavalry. What we're doing is we're taking growth factors. These are things that float around in your body and tell your tissue what to do. And we're putting little zip codes on them so we can send them so they swim to very specific spots. And we have one that we're building that can swim into the plaques in your arteries, functioning like a molecular stent. And we're building another one that can swim into your muscles to treat various muscular dystrophies, and a similar one for bone. And uh, we call those molecules cupids, and they're pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love the cupids. Yeah. Kristen, tell us a bit about BioAge. Uh, yeah, thanks, Dina, uh, for having me here today. So BioAge is a clinical stage biotechnology company developing a pipeline of therapies that treat diseases of aging and that ultimately might help extend the healthy lifespan. Um, so we currently have three different programs in the clinic. Our most advanced one, so that's probably the most exciting you know, piece of data right now, uh, it's right in the middle of a phase two trial. And this drug, we think, rejuvenates certain aspects of immune aging. Uh, so in particular, as you get older, if you're challenged with pretty much any virus or bacteria, your dendritic cells don't migrate as well to where they're needed to wake up your T cells. Um, and this drug can correct that. And so it can help improve your response to the flu, but also to, to COVID. Um, which is clearly a disease of immune aging. I mean, if everybody here had the immune system of a 20-year-old, it would be a very different pandemic. Uh, so that first trial with that drug, where we're in the middle of the phase two, um, it's an older COVID-19 uh, patient population that's hospitalized that we're going into. And these are people who still, like 30% of these people, because of their age, are progressing to really poor outcomes like ventilator or, or even death. Um, we have two additional programs that are clinical stage right now uh, focused on muscle aging and really a pipeline of therapies. We wanna bring several more clinical programs uh, forward over the coming years. And another important point to mention about BioAge is that all of these programs, these different mechanistic bets on these uh, you know, molecular biology of aging are coming from our human data platform. So we have invested a lot in understanding how humans age 
uh, from middle age and onwards to death. And that's where our discoveries and our pipelines and our targets are coming from. And James? So, Cambrian? Thanks, Dina. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming in. So, I run a company called Cambrian, which was created to uh, capture a bit of the promise of this longevity biotech industry, which is really in its infancy, but a pretty exciting infancy. And, and so I've spent most of my career um, working with academics from around the world who have made a key discovery uh, that can extend the healthy lifespan of an animal, usually a mouse. And figuring out with them, how do you take that discovery in a mouse and build it into a human medicine? And, and so Cambrian has created uh, a whole series of subsidiaries. We have 12 different companies under our umbrella advancing 14 different programs, each of which has already shown that it can impact both a, um, both a fundamental pathway in aging and another disease in mouse models. And now those programs are marching towards the clinic. Um, and we're kind of along this path where we're bringing uh, between five and eight new scientific discoveries under our umbrella every single year, which is a, a fun place to be. Few things that we're going to dive deeper later on in the discussion that you mentioned, but just that basically an overview. Um, should we start with kind of giving a bit of background on aging? So, even going into aging as as a clinician, right? Going from oh, we want to prevent heart disease, and then I just ended up oh, heart disease is actually linked to the immune system. So, why didn't I devote my career to actually preventing the causes of the causes? So all of you are creating drugs that address these causes of the causes. All of you are addressing aging in one way or the other. Um, could you tell us, like, why does aging even happen? I don't know, Ned. What are your thoughts? So first, I'll just say, as a scientist, we do not know why we age. For example, a mouse lives three years. A human, 85 years. A Greenland shark, 400 years we do not have any real idea why these differences exist. And we are clearly missing something very big. But uh, if you ask me, you know, what do I think? Okay, so I'll express why I think we age through a movie metaphor. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen this 1970s movie called Grey Gardens. It's a movie went shown at the Cannes Film Festival, and it was this movie about these aging socialites living in this house that used to be this grand house out in the Hamptons. They lived there for 50 years in ever-increasing poverty, and they never repaired anything. So after 50 years of this, they're hanging out, and there are raccoons that are now living inside the house. Feral cats live there. It's infested with fleas. The water doesn't work, and there are holes in the roof. The health department was trying to evict them. So why am I telling this story about a 1970s movie? Well, I think aging is a lot like that house in Grey Gardens. If you look at biology as we age, at every level of organization, from the very lowest level, where your DNA sequence is, to the very highest level of organization, when you look at an old person and what you see with your eyes when you look at them, if you look at your DNA, it mutates as you age throughout your body. If you click up another level of organization, you see that the cells 
that are in, essentially encoded by your DNA, you begin to lose them. You actually have fewer cells as you get older, which is a little disturbing. Click up another layer to the layer of tissue organization. Your tissues, which when you're young have beautiful organization. If you look in the retina, the retina of a 20-year-old has these beautiful structural divisions between the various layers within the retina, which are lost as you age. Or if you look in skin of a young person, which is defined with these beautiful demarcations between the epidermis and dermis, as you age, it becomes this chaotic, undulating landscape where you can't even tell the difference anymore. And if you look at the highest level, when you simply look at an older person and you see the performance loss and all of the hallmarks that you think of as aging, that you see disorder there as well. And I think that like in Grey Gardens, biology never figured out how to resist disorder. It never figured out how to resist it or how to reverse it because it was never selected on. But clearly the Greenland shark knows something we don't know about resisting disorder. And if we knew, I think we could start to build tools that would do that. Yeah. It, it, it's an interesting point to leap off of. Um, Ned mentioned, like, we just didn't evolve this. It's, I think, really important to remember in this space that the major killer of humankind was not these diseases of aging until the 20th century. And so the fact that we are, as a society, grappling with them is still a relatively new phenomenon compared to our ancestral and evolutionary predators, the infectious disease, right? And, and so, you know, we were programmed in some ways by evolution or, or selected for an evolution to become healthily into our reproductive ages. And then after that, you know, there's like some benefits of, go of growing a little bit beyond that, but not huge ones. And so now this engineering problem that we have is like, okay, can we add in what evolution would have liked to do, but wasn't being selected for hard enough? Can we figure out those mechanisms and put them into a much more long-lived society, which is what we're all becoming? Fascinating. Couldn't agree more. But anyway, I think where we want to take this panel forward is really provide the audience with like some tips of like, what is a good longevity company? So let's structure it in three parts. Let's talk about the measuring things, like how do we assess a good longevity asset? Then let's talk about the structure of a longevity company. And then perhaps about the computational approaches, proprietary data sets that, for example, BioAge has been pioneering to create a longevity company of high value. So James, I'll start with biomarkers, and perhaps I'll, I'll, we could talk about this further. People always talk about, oh, it's very difficult to do clinical trials of aging because how am I going to follow up people over 50 years and then find out in 50 years' time if this is going to affect their aging? And then we talked a lot, and there's been a lot of research about developing some surrogate biomarkers, so things that can tell us in only a short period of time how one's biological age is, is changing. But we ended up having, we are having different clocks, but not a single has been validated. Do you think that a longevity company needs to invest in these biomarkers? And then what is like Cambrian doing in this bioinformatics biomarker space so that we're able to actually conduct trials so that we can show, aha, this intervention over this five-year trial affects aging and will extend your life if you take it for 20 years and you're, you're going to get, I don't know, 35 years of extra healthy life expectancy? Yeah. So the short, short answer to that question is yes. Uh, but but just 
giving a little bit more data there and to reemphasize the point, um, the fundamental challenge of building a company in this emerging longevity space is what Dina just mentioned. Like if we chopped the room in half and gave half of you an experimental aging drug and put half of you on a placebo, what do we expect that drug to actually do? We expect that people's like people's house would grow into disorder slower, right? We'd get less cancer, less Alzheimer's disease, less muscle weakness, all of these things that happen with as we age. But if this was our experimental group, how long would we have to wait to see all of those changes start happening? And and so as Dina mentioned, there is a way in developing medicines that can help us get around that problem and not have to wait for 15 years. And that is by developing a surrogate biomarker of age-related disease risk. And this is something we don't, uh, we don't know exactly what this will be yet, but this is going to be the fulcrum point where you change from a whole bunch of interesting medicines built on pathways in longevity to an industry that I think will eclipse the rest of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and so, in my view, each longevity biotech company has to have those two, these two things in mind. First, how do you take medicines that target fundamental pathways in aging, show them to be safe, effective, and get them on the market in some disease today? And secondly, how can you lay the foundations for this inflection point that will come to dominate how we think about medicines for the deadliest diseases of our time? Fascinating. And I guess going back to the structure of this longevity company that we're all hoping for, and hopefully multiple companies, um, and we also invest at SALT in some of these longevity companies. So how should this company be structured? Should it be a, a single company that's got multiple clinical programs? Should it be a distributed company, more like an LLC structure with multiple subsidiaries? Um, Kristen, could you tell us a bit more about how you set up BioAge and which model did you choose for and which model do you think is, is the best one? And there are pros and cons that we will discuss together. Yeah, I mean, like that's, that's a, a challenging problem, I think. What is the optimal model in biotech? And I think it's evolving. It depends as a function of, you know, what the investment climate is, but also what your strategy is as a company, you know. And, and in our case at BioAge, all our targets are coming from our platform and we've invested a lot in really the human data sets to evaluate the targets, to de-risk our clinical indications, but also just the really old mice that we use to test out all our interventions um, in the common indications that are our focus areas. So leveraging those over and over again, we're sort of, a, we're gonna be a platform style company, which has worked out well for a lot of other, I would say comparables in our space, like uh, Recursion and others, yeah, Denali, yeah. <laughs> I guess people often say it could be easier to go public if you kind of concluded everything, but how do you risk stratify? Um, Ned, you've, you've done both. Like, can you tell us a bit about your experience? You've been in both worlds. Yeah, so um, I wish I knew what was best. <laughs> we're in the midst of lived experience right now, but I've, you know, over the last 22 years, all the companies I built were normal. When I say normal, meaning you set up a C-Corp, you, you divide up stock, you put people in it, you raise money. And that seemed to work well enough. Um, I, Jupiter, my new vehicle, is actually set up much the way Cambrian is set up, where it's a, a structure where we have um, a sort of top co on top with, well, what's Jupiter, of course, has moons. <laughs> so every one of the uh, companies we start actually begins with a, um, a moon of Jupiter name. And there's lots of moons of Jupiter, 79 at last count. So we've got a lot of names we can work with. And um, so we're giving that a try. And um, I think actually James has a really good explanation as to why. 
this works. Do you, James, you want to talk about sure. the academic? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. I'll jump in. So my general view on the biotech space broadly, not just the longevity uh, world, is that discoveries, come, most, most discoveries are coming out of universities at some point, and, and those discoveries are going to fall into two broad types of categories. Um, discoveries that create a platform that allow you to make a number of other fundamental discoveries. This is kind of what, uh, what BioEdge has, a platform company. And then individual breakthroughs that lead to a single opportunity to make a drug, a single hypothesis, but that has binary risk, right? Where you're going to, it's either going to work or it's not going to. And, and my view is that these are going to develop into two types of biotech companies that can live on the public markets. One is these platform companies like Moderna, um, you know, a lot that we've seen in, in the biotech space today. And then another are what I call engines, where it's more about how do you source and operationalize these individual discoveries from around the world and then wrap them together into a single risk diversified entity. And that's what Cambrian is. And could you elaborate a bit more about that, about your holding company, subsidiaries, have you put it together? Because some traditional biotech in investors would say, why would I invest in such a holding company? Because I'm essentially paying fees and fees. If the biotech fund invests into a holding company and then the holding company goes and acquire assets, why would I go for such structure? And what we're seeing right now in this world of Biotech and aging is really this intersection of, it's kind of taking a step back. It's cross-hybridization of multiple fields. So we have different set of investors and we've got a lot of um, tech investors and they're more open to this structure. For them, it's like, okay, I understand this model. We can fail and iterate quickly. I, I, I like it. But biotech investors are still very cautious. So what do you say about that? And how have you created that system that it goes smoothly and you have multiple subsidiaries? Give us a bit more color there. I mean, I could talk about the financial engineering here until uh, we all would hope for some aging drugs. Um, but but let's, let, let me kind of just be general on it. I think that the fees on fees argument doesn't actually play out when you're operating these companies. Uh, so I used to run a VC fund before, before I started Cambrian, and we took uh, as one of our principal financial objectives all of the fees that you would pay a VC fund plus all of the salaries and so on that you would pay to an executive team to run all of these different assets if you wanted to make individual bets, we can run the company for about 75% of, of what this would be and then eliminate uh, a lot of that extra management layer. In some ways, the inefficiencies of single VC bets. Um, and so I think that that doesn't really hold water uh, when you get down into the operation of these companies. And then secondly, one of the big challenges of early stage biotech companies is finding a team that knows how to develop drugs. Academics are trained to make breakthroughs. It's different teams that are trained to develop drugs. And so building an, a centralized expert team that knows how to work with academics to bring those drugs forward is the differentiator between many of the companies that make it and many that don't. And it, it has been, you can get incredible people who you can deploy extremely efficiently in one of these roll-up models. I think that's part of the reason that um, that I've really fallen in love with the structure. I, I will say, Dina, though, that this this structure definitely gives the classic Sand Hill Road biotech VCs, you know, uh, sort of a conniption fit. Yes. You know, and you know, you know, my classical, you know, the VCs that I've invested with for years, Arch and Venrock, they don't want to invest actually. And Jupiter, they want to invest in Jupiter's moons, 
and that works okay too. Okay, um, I will say also there's no fees in in our model because every single dollar that winds up going into the to Jupiter winds up being converted into ownership in the moons. So there's literally zero. Yep. It's 100% capital efficient. Fascinating. Well, I think the, the biotech model does does need to change because we do need to remove the binary risk of kind of finding true love. It might work, it might not. Um, Kristen, what about the IP? So if we were to start a longevity company, and again, like how we're assessing longevity company, you started with a lot of proprietary data and then you were managed to acquire clinical assets and really accelerated. I mean, it's extremely rare to find a longevity biotech that's got two clinical assets almost. Like, do you think that that was the key and how did you do that? Uh, yeah, sure, great question. I mean, our, our whole approach at BioAge is, aging is really complicated, right? You've heard that today. There's all these different things that are going wrong. Um, and from the panel earlier, and we believe that our thesis is that we want to learn from what's already working. And what I mean by that is that there are already all these like human experiments out there, people that are living 90 or 100 plus, and their brains still work, their bodies still work. What's different about their biology that we can learn from? And um, so at BioAge, we've invested a lot in mapping out how humans age. We've made a number of special uh, relationships with biobanks where we have proprietary and exclusive data that started, they're very special biobanks. They started collecting samples from middle-aged people as long as 50 years ago. So there's like blood that's been in the freezer for 50 years, uh, collected longitudinally, and then coupled to health records that track these individuals for the entire rest of their lives. And uh, so that's our, our starting point, right? And what we do is we go into these samples, we enumerate every molecule in there with modern technologies, so that's thousands of proteins with the proteome, uh, thousands of metabolites, tens of thousands of RNA transcripts make a big list of stuff. And then from these data sets, you can ask a whole bunch of questions. You can say like, what's changing with age? But even more importantly, you can say, what is predicting the future? Like what is different about those 50 year olds who are going on to live 90 plus with great muscle strength, with great cognitive function from the rest of us and start to build a map of those differences. And that's the science that underlies what we do. And as you might expect, because so many different things are going wrong, there are several dozen important pathways for aging. And then from that point onward, because aging is a new space, it's new in biotech, it's hard, uh, we want to start with like the most de-risk programs possible. So we started with the intersection of these pathways that are important for aging in the human data with the clinical assets that are already out there. Because there's a lot of risk in developing a drug and taking it through IND, taking it to that first clinical trial, even looking at the safety signal. So our criteria for our first set of drugs, while it's that have already been in the phase one, we have to know that it's already safe, we have to know that it hits its target then we can go immediately into a phase two proof of concept study in an important aging indication. And we're making three such clinical stage bets today. And I'd like us to make as many as 10 over the next couple of years. Um, an important point too, right? I think that's kind of the first wave of targets emerging from our data sets. It's gonna be these ones where the clinical stage assets exist. Then we can start to look at the assets that are near IND. And we can start to work on discovery programs. Um, an important point too, I think, especially in the context of academic science is one reason we love our human cohorts is because we think it's like a, a human overlay on all of what's known about aging biology, right? So it's gonna be a lot of things that are like really important for how a mouse ages or how a worm or fly ages, which is really a, still the focus of academic science. And many of those are just not gonna matter for us. Like mice, for example, die exclusively of cancer. Heart disease is not like a bottleneck to their lifespan. Um, Alzheimer's never happens, which is why they've been a terrible model for Alzheimer's drug discovery. So we like being able to use our human data to say, 
you know, like most, and I can tell you, right, most of the things that work on, on animals, you don't see human signal. And, and that doesn't mean that they're not going to work, but it just, they're much less compelling than the ones where you see a massive human signal. Uh, so for example, the drug that we brought in most recently from Amgen, it's an agonist of the apolin receptor. Um, apolin is an exocrine that circulates in your blood. Um, there was a, a Nature Medicine paper from one of our collaborators a couple years ago showing that it can increase mouth health span. So it actually, if you gave it to older mice, they, they ran better on their wheels. Um, but then when we looked in our human data, you saw this really strong signal where if, if you had higher levels of apolin at middle age, you're, you're living longer, your brain works better longer, um, your muscles work better longer. And that's the kind of data package that we really like to see. And, and the, the way that we work is we see the human signal, then we reach out to a company to get an asset and we stick it into our in vivo models. So we did a whole like bevy of muscle aging models in mice uh, with Amgen's drug. And we are very excited by the results and we're gonna start that trial in like a few months. Absolutely. And you've touched upon a very important topic and um, which is clinical trials. Regardless of how excited we are about aging, aging is not recognized as an indication by the FDA. And a drug needs to pass some trials and show some results in order to, to be approved, in order to be licensed. So often a challenge of these companies is like, what indication, like what disease should I almost pitch this drug to so that I can have a good trial and then my drug will be in the market and then we could potentially use this drug to cure other things and potentially be used um, for prevention of, of aging. Ned, I think you do need to tell a story there um, about how did you struggle once you identified a scientific pathway with the indication and how you managed to find the right indication and how should longevity companies think about conducting clinical trials? So um, I come at this question pretty differently than James, um, probably more similar to the way Kristen thinks about it. So I'm a drug hunter by trade. Okay. I don't necessarily try to cure aging. I use aging to help discover drugs. And so the way I came at this was really with the grain in terms of how FDA and similar agencies want us to discover drugs today, which is pick a disease that you can point at that you know people suffer from and make a medicine for that disease. Hey, if it impacts aging, great, but please don't talk about it. Right. And, um, and so that's the approach we took at Unity, uh, you know, going after, you know, first arthritis, which is the primary reason it hurts to be old. I would say that's pretty close to aging. And then, of course, diseases of the aging retina. And so, you know, we shied away in a very intentional way from trying to use some sort of biomarker of aging and stuck squarely to diseases of aging. I think that an agency like FDA, which views itself primarily, and it's in the DNA of the organization, as a protector of the populace. You know, after all, they started regulating food, you know, before they did drugs. And the notion that they would allow you to make a medicine that would impact the very slowest thing that happens to us, which is aging, is just against their DNA. It's against their culture. Now, will that change occur? Sure, maybe. But I think it's a very uphill battle. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a really tough slog. Yeah. Fascinating. I'd like to comment here too, actually, because you know, this is probably 
it's drug developers and aging. It's like a such central topic, right? Yeah. Like, how do you actually, if you believe you have an, an aging drug, you know, in your hands, like in our case, it's rejuvenating muscle aging or rejuvenating immune aging, how do you get the most out of that? And, and you know, in our case, we're committing to mechanisms that we think ultimately could be safely administered to a large population chronically. Like, we've made those decisions so far. But yes, we have to start with like a, an acute indication that's a real disease, because otherwise it's a, it's a hard road. We're trying to have the best of both worlds by, by going to town on, on secondary endpoints, right? Because we're giving our drug, which we think is addressing an aging mechanism in a specific disease context, but we want to know, are we also slowing their aging? Um, so we're very interested in collecting like omics biomarkers and using wearables to collect motion data and learn as much as we can about the aging of these people as well. Hopefully as like to guide indication selection, right? There are a handful of examples like, like statins, which are kind of prescribed like an aging drug today. Right, but which had a sort of more narrow start, and the indication label, you know, widened over time. Uh, and I think we can learn from those. Yeah, we could use it as a way in, and then expand the, the indications. And I guess the final question: um, This is still an audience that actively invests and supports new technologies. Like, what single technology or breakthrough that you think will happen in this decade are you most excited about, and you think will have an impact on human longevity? wants to go first it's a difficult one all right Ned. so this first. decade yes so it's going to be how to properly dose rapamycin <laughs> so rapamycin is a drug that's approved in the united states for believe it or not when you get a kidney transplant so you don't reject it so you take this drug every day and it tampens down your immune system now turns out this drug given at a much lower dose about one-seventh the dose, will extend the lifespan of rodents by 30%. And it works in flies, rodents, you know, every species we've tried it in, this drug works. And this, you know, but no one knows how to dose it. And no one really even understands why it extends life. It's a mystery. Uh, but figuring out a safe and efficacious dose of this molecule is going to happen this decade, and it's going to be something that will, when figured out, be used by tens of millions of people. Fascinating. There were actually studies, um, and we mentioned that rapamycin or rapamycin analogs might even be used as um, immune boosters together with effective oh, yeah. vaccines. So yes. it's I something that I think has accelerated an interest into the field as we battle through. Yeah, there's an extensive literature using rapamycin. Uh, both in humans as well as in animals, in which your response to vaccination doesn't go down, as you might intuitively think, but goes up. Again, mysterious as to why. Yeah. Uh, James? So I guess I'm going to... It would be fun to just talk about RAPA for a while, uh, and, and we could have a panel just on that. Um, but I'm going to depart a little bit and say, if we talk about the biggest innovations in this field, I think that they're actually organizational and strategic as opposed to scientific. I think that the, the last decade saw enough scientific breakthroughs in this aging space to fill an awful lot of corporate pipelines. And all of those innovations addressing the question of how you take these fundamental insights into pathways of aging biology and get those into human clinical trials, that's the experiment that in some ways the three of us are here taking different shots on goal at, taking different, I think, very thoughtful strategic approaches to building big biotech companies, addressing the space, and then 
somewhere around the end of this decade, there's going to be this strategic inflection point. And in my view, as Ned was just talking about, it's going to be around the time that the FDA, or if the US is too slow and too conservative, another regulatory agency elsewhere in the world takes the plunge and allows companies that have safe and effective drugs that target an aging pathway to be tested in healthy people with a short surrogate endpoint clinical trial. And the moment that happens, the world starts to change forever. And I think that that can happen this decade. Could be like so, El Salvador and Bitcoin. We have to give Kristen a right. chance to Good. answer this question. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the kinds of enabling technologies that I'm the most bullish on are really these genomic scale technologies to interrogate and also intervene um, in biology. And like, for example, that's like what BioAges uses with proteomics and human cohorts. Well, that's what a CRISPR screen is, right? And the reason why I think these are so important is because they allow you to to brute force what are otherwise incredibly challenging problems. Like Ned mentioned, we still don't actually know how rapamycin works, right? But it does work. And it's a matter of figuring out how to dose it. And if we could, I mean, like whenever someone is doing like an exome scale experiment to find a, a PCSK9 or another genetic variant that predisposes to protect you from disease, it's, it's a kind of a brute forcing experiment. Um, so now that we have these technologies and the AI and the computation to like analyze these data sets for millions of points, I think there's a lot of really important problems in aging we can apply them to. And again, I'm a big believer in copying what already works, right? So bowhead whales, Greenland sharks, they're doing something different. We have the tools now to figure out what. Um, even epigenetic reprogramming, right? These are the tools that are going to teach us how it works. Um, so I think the space is going to get a lot bigger. Well, I was just going to say um, that it would be hard. Well, much of what you said is true. There's all this stuff we can work on to make medicines out of. But the notion that that could be more exciting than knowing why a Greenland shark lives 400 years, that stretches it, I think. Because, I mean, when we start to piece that narrative together, like, oh my Lord, think of what we will be able to do. I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, as a scientist, nothing gets me more jazzed about that. But I think, I think that the, the inflection point for this field is not going to be finding the next rapamycin or the next, you know, whatever's driving the 400-year lifespans of the Greenland shark. It's to create an ecosystem where everyone in the world cares desperately about that problem. And I think that if we hit that inflection point, we enter a world where it's not just like the folks up here that know all about this, but all of you guys are thinking every single day about what that next scientific breakthrough that's going to elucidate how the Greenland shark lives to 400 years because it will affect your lives in the impending future. And that, I think, is, is where I want to push this space. And I think that's where we're going to see stuff this decade. Well, the first approved drug for aging, I think, is going to be such an important milestone, right? Like, it's still such a tiny field. There are a handful of biotechs. We are probably most of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> clinical or near clinical working on aging. And, you know, but there are dozens of mechanisms that could be brought forward that could extend health span and lifespan. And I think that, yes, getting that, 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 those, that first program through, which is probably already exists, um, mm -hmm. either in academia or the clinic, is going to be transformational. Well, on the creation to a creation of a longevity ecosystem, uh, thank you everyone for the lively discussion and thank you to the audience for listening in.